Welcome to Now Let's Talk, the podcast with Vanessa Corwin and Kathleen Kahn, where we speak with our guests about the joys and challenges of life in today's world. Hello, I'm Vanessa Corwin. And I'm Kathleen Kahn. Sleep. We need it. We want it. But are we getting enough? What are the consequences of insufficient sleep? With us today to answer these questions and more is Dr. Stephen Feinsilver, Director of Sleep Medicine at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. Welcome, doctor. Thank you so much for joining us. Our listeners uh, are very interested in this topic. So let's start with kind of the basics. So how much sleep do we really need? And does it vary by age? The average human supposedly needs about seven and a quarter hours of sleep. Actually, the best answer to that is you need enough sleep to feel good the next day, period, whatever that is. Yeah, that's pretty simple. I was wondering, uh, is it true that consistency, like going to bed at the same time every night, is it more important than the number of hours you sleep? I think certainly there's a certain amount of sleep you need. Uh, the way to get it, ideally, uh, you'll do best if you pretty much keep consistent hours. And particularly at the wake time, it's probably the time you wake up that sets your internal body clock. The reason people get jet lag is you can't change that that much from day to day. Yes. You can change it maybe an hour at a time, no problem. Uh, but people get jet lag when you try to change schedule many hours at a time. And the same thing happens with sleep without getting on a, a jet. If you try to get up six o'clock Monday through Friday and sleep till noon on Saturday or Sunday, it's like going to Europe every weekend. <laughs> a lot of people do that. It does not work. And the hallmark of that, in fact, is Sunday night insomnia. Sunday night. <laughs> Sunday night is the insomnia night for everybody. There are several reasons for that, but largely it's because you sleep late on weekends. Right. And it changed your time zone. And also you may be worried about what's going on on Monday and all the other things on your mind. So there, there are other reasons for that too, but part of it is circadian. Wow. Well, I, I certainly am um, a victim of that. So other than being tired and, uh, you know, having your concentration a little bit compromised, are there other signs of poor sleep that we should be on the lookout for? Well, sure. I mean, the most obvious is just being sleepy the next day. Again, the only reason to sleep is to not be sleepy during the day. We need sleep for a lot of different reasons. Mostly it's for brain function. Mostly so you can be more awake and not get sleepy the next day and concentrate better. Humans actually do pretty well with a single night of sleep deprivation. After one single bad night, night. you not feel great, but you'll probably, to the outside world, do pretty well. Right. It's mm. when they're all bad mm. that things really start acting. Oh, yeah. And that's both, again, both quality and quantity, a certain amount and a certain quality of sleep. There's also effects on the rest of you. I mean, we know, for example probably does not get enough press. If you sleep deprive people, they gain weight. Oh. Sleep deprivation, even briefly, and this study has been done ages ago, changes some of the hormones that are involved in appetite regulation. Hmm. 
and take a normal healthy person, sleep deprive them for about a week, and appetite increases. Uh, you know, I could argue it's associated with heart disease, it's associated with mortality, it probably raises your blood pressure. But somehow when I tell people that you gain weight if you're sleep deprived, that gets more interest for a lot of people. Sleep disorders, what are some common ones? The main symptom of bad sleep is daytime sleepiness. And again, that's all we really care about. If you feel good during the day, you're okay. Now, the number one reason to be sleepy during the day is sleep deprivation, period. Um, and it's very common. And, you know, I practice sleep medicine in the city that never sleeps. Frank Sinatra was right. I'm astounded by how little some people I see actually sleep. Um, again, it's not exactly clear how much you need, but um, a little over seven hours is a, mm -hmm. a good starting point for most people. If I knew nothing else about you, except that you're sleeping a reasonable number of hours and you're sleepy during the day, asking no other questions, sleep apnea is the mm -hmm. most likely. Oh, yes, yes. And that's a purely physical problem. Uh, very common. Sleep apnea is about as common as diabetes or asthma, just to name other very common chronic illnesses. Narcolepsy is a fairly rare disease, but a common, not common, but a, something I see a lot, a reason to be sleepy during the day. There are lots of medical reasons to get poor sleep and feel bad during the day. Uh, like what? <laughs> you know, my other life, I'm also a lung doctor. Uh, pulmonary patients do not sleep well. People with uh, chronic renal failure do not sleep well. People with mm -hmm. arthritis, more obviously, maybe. Anything that hurts doesn't entirely go away at night. Hmm. You're likely to sleep badly. You know, just about every medical illness uh, interferes with sleep or can. And bad sleep can worsen just about every medical illness, too. Now, is, is insomnia considered a sleep disorder? Sure. But then you're going to ask me, what is insomnia? <laughs> That's a much harder question to answer. Um, you mean it's not just, oh, I can't fall asleep? Well, it's hard to define insomnia. Uh, huh. We say it's difficulty initiating or maintaining sleep. Or, for many people, just the perception of poor sleep quality. Which is sometimes not even that accurate, or at least hard to figure out. Uh, we all do a terrible job of assessing our own sleep. I mean, you can remember the time you're awake. You won't remember the time you're asleep. So most people with poor sleep really underestimate the amount they're sleeping. You remember the time you're awake. And that's, uh, that's a tough problem. It's hard mm. to figure out what insomnia is in many ways. Um, we wanted to ask you, particularly I did, because it's a an important part of my life about dreaming and how that affects uh, sleep. Personally, I dream every night. I remember my dreams. I wake up, go back to sleep. But this has been my whole life. How, how does that affect? Well, let's talk about what normal sleep is. Normal sleep comes in, we consider four different stages. Uh, stage one is light sleep. If you fall asleep briefly in a lecture and somebody called your name, you probably answer it. You won't know what the question was. <laughs> Stage two is about half of the night, and it's sort of average sleep. Stage three, we see more in children. It's the really deep sleep. 
there's unfortunately less of it as you get older, although it doesn't go away entirely. In stage three sleep, if the phone rings in the middle of the night and you can't figure out what the noise is, you're really confused, can't find the phone, you've been awakened out of stage three sleep. That's the really good stuff. And then there's another totally different kind of sleep called REM sleep. REM sleep is named that way for rapid eye movements. It was originally called paradoxical sleep. The paradox being your brain is pretty active. Your muscles are almost paralyzed. Now, this makes sense if you realize that it's dreaming sleep. Pretty much all dreaming is REM sleep. In REM sleep, it would be good, since you're thinking all these really weird things, to have your muscles disconnected. It's common to dream that you're paralyzed, can't move, can't run, can't talk, because in fact, during REM sleep, you are pretty close to paralyzed. Wow. When that doesn't work, so you can act out dreams, you get a disaster called REM sleep disorder. Hmm. Uh oh, I think I have it. No, I don't. That's when people actually act out their dreams. Now, there's a cycle to this every two, two and a half hours, something like that. Um, you go through different stages of sleep, then a REM period, then very frequently awake for a few minutes, and then it happens again. If you're awake briefly, you won't remember anything, including being awake. If the dream perhaps is really interesting or exciting and you wake up totally, you might remember your dream. But you probably dreamed three times last night and it's unlikely to remember all of them. If you have really bad sleep, you may not dream much. If you have really good sleep, go right from dreaming sleep back to non-dreaming sleep, you might not remember much. All of this, everything I've said about sleep staging, is very variable, which is why some nights after seven and a quarter hours sleep, you wake up feeling good, and sometimes you wake up feeling not as good. It's all how these stages are put together. Now, let's say that uh, you see a patient and you think maybe this patient has a a sleep disorder of some sort. So how how do you how do you diagnose these conditions? Do you put them in a sleep lab and and do various tests? How does that work? Sometimes yes. Um, much of what we you know when I see a patient in the office, it's a fairly common medical history and physical. Uh, I want to know answers to you know simple sleep history, which is what time you go to bed, how fast do you fall asleep. Do you wake up during the night? What time do you get up? Do you snore? And then probably the hardest question is, are you sleeping? <laughs> the answer to those questions is a whole lot of what I care about. And maybe other questions like anything weird happens during sleep. You know, there are a lot of other interesting things. Um, and depending on what we're looking for, uh, patients might come into a sleep center. Uh, in a sleep center, we stick a bunch of wires on you and let you sleep. Obviously, it's got to be comfortable with nobody who sleep. Amazingly, uh, take most people, put them in a strange place, say sleep, they sleep. I've run a sleep lab for you know, 35 years or so. And yeah, we do that all the time. Now, however, it's a relatively complicated and for insurance companies, expensive test to do. So increasingly, we do a lot of home sleep studies. In fact, now in our center, we do more home sleep studies than in lab sleep studies. So how does a home sleep study work? There are various gadgets that we can give you to go home with that will record sleep. Depends kind of what you're looking for. 
Uh, we want to make it as simple and unobtrusive as possible, you know, so it's easy. You can put it on yourself. And so once it's on, you know, to think about it. What are you looking for when you send somebody home with this? Mostly breathing. It's mostly sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is about three quarters of what every sleep lab deals with. That's the big disease. It's also useful to measure sleep when you're looking for insomnia and other reasons to sleep badly. What we can do at home pretty well is look for sleep apnea. Turns out oxygen level, breathing, that's pretty easy. Some of the other things happen during sleep requires brain waves, EEG, which means yeah. you know you need a trained uh, technician to stick a mm -hmm. bunch of wires on you and get good signals yes. for that. You can't do that at home. Not practical. Right. So for sleep apnea, mostly the treatment is wearing one of those masks. Is that what? Yes. Is that sort of the the main treatment for that? Yeah, it is. Um, it's not the only treatment, and not everybody needs to be treated. Oh. Many people have mild apnea, and it's really unclear how much mild apnea should be treated. When it's severe, yes, CPAP is a life changer. Hmm. CPAP is what this device is called. I tell people as soon as you see it, you know it must really work. Because no one would sleep with a stupid looking thing unless it really worked. <laughs> Excuse me, but I've heard um, I have a friend who has sleep apnea and he does fine. His wife, who also had it, did not. I mean, she pulled this mask out constantly. But I was telling her that I saw on television, there's something you can insert in your arm. That's the same yes. thing without the mask. What do you, What is that? That's different. Um, well, first of all, CPAP is a really simple idea. Uh, what snoring and apnea have in common, it's all about the back of the throat. Hmm. Basically, when you partially block off the back of the throat, you make a lot of noise. That's snoring. Hmm. It's not a medical illness. Uh, no one's ever shown really snoring is bad for you. But... Some people who snore also completely block off the throat again and again and again, and that's apnea. Mm -hmm. And that, when it's bad, is clearly bad for you. Now, the simplest okay. way to treat that is a little pressure delivered by some sort of a mask you wear over the nose or the mouth. By pushing in a little bit of air, it keeps the back of your throat from blocking off. Oh. It's just a really simple and brilliant idea. Hmm. Lately, the it's changed. The basic idea hasn't changed. The technology has changed enormously. So that first of all, we don't call them masks anymore. Most people have a, a small thing, looks more like an oxygen hose you see in a hospital. Something goes under the nose, doesn't usually block the mouth. And the air is delivered by a machine that's so smart that it's actually um, regulating the air pressure based on your breathing. It's monitoring your breathing. Wow. And about every 10 minutes or so, it'll increase or decrease the pressure to keep your breathing good. It also keeps score. So in the morning, it'll say, okay, you wore this thing for seven and a half hours and your apnea hypopnea index is two, meaning how many times you stop breathing. Oh, wow. Well, that's what it is, isn't it? They, they stop breathing. Yes. Stop or, well, slowing down. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's irregular breathing during the night. Now, breathing is irregular during everybody during sleep. So it's a matter of degree. 
And that's why it's even hard to know exactly when it becomes a disease. Hmm. When it's mild, it may not be a disease. It's probably not important. When it's severe, it clearly is bad. Associated with heart disease, uh, increased chance of stroke, elevated blood pressure, basically dying earlier. Like lots of bad stuff. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about uh, chronic disease, like people who are diabetic or people with heart conditions, obesity, this kind of thing. How does lack of sleep affect these conditions? The literature is not all that great. Hmm. You know, some of this is hard to prove. And really, that's because we don't measure sleep that much. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's relatively difficult and expensive to do big studies on, on sleep. There's a lot of stuff we don't know, which makes it more interesting. Um, almost every everything that makes you uncomfortable makes sleep worse. Arthritis, for example. Uh, if you're not resting well, uh, everything is going to ache more. If everything aches more, you're not going to sleep very well. Uh, I mean, sure, sleep affects everything. Sleep apnea is a little easier. Of the diseases we know a lot about, uh, that's that's the number one sleep disease we really understand. And that's uh, clearly associated with heart disease, increased chances of stroke, increased blood pressure. And there's pretty good evidence when we treat it the risk of all those things gets better. Wow. What about having like the right mattress and the right pillow? How important is that? Uh, well, first of all, humans design sleep in caves. Dark, cold, quiet. That's really important. We sleep better when it's a little cooler than average. Oh. Badly when it's warmer. Uh, now, it's for, as sleeping surface I really don't know. And there's stuff that's been written about that, but not at all convincing, I think. Uh, there is no best mattress, as far as I can tell. It's completely idiosyncratic. There's certainly some positions that are harder to sleep in than others. And humans are designed to sleep lying down. Uh, people who sleep in a chair don't sleep very well. Although for some medical conditions, people will have a hard time lying down. I don't think there is any best mattress, or at least I don't think anybody's figured that out. Now, what do you feel about over-the-counter sleep aids, uh, like melatonin or just a B-flat sleep aid? Does, yeah. does that harm you? Well, you read the labels. Um, melatonin is probably okay. Uh, there's some problems with it. Uh, melatonin is a natural substance. It's what your brain makes briefly uh, when sleep starts. It's not really there all night to keep you asleep. So if it does anything, it might help you fall asleep. Mm -hmm. uh, the only place that it's really been, well, there's sort of two times that we use it, really. It's probably useful for jet lag when you're trying to change your time zone. It's also used for, it seems to work for REM behavior disorder, this peculiar disease when people can act out dreams. Huh. That's much rarer. It turns out melatonin works, and I don't think anybody knows why. Other than that, it's unclear. And the problem with melatonin, the study's now been done twice. Uh, unfortunately, if you go to a drugstore and buy a lot of different samples of melatonin, the FDA does not approve melatonin. And oh. people have tried to look at how much is really in the pills. Uh, the uh, literature is very disturbing. You know, what's marked is not necessarily what you get. That's disturbing. I'd be happier if it were regulated in some way. Um, 
you know, is it useful for sleep insomnia? Probably not. But a lot of that is probably placebo. Now, over-the-counter sleeping pills, I have actually more of a problem with in many ways. Almost everything over-the-counter is an antihistamine. Your Tylenol PM is Tylenol plus diphenhydramine, Benadryl. It's an antihistamine. Diphenhydramine or Benadryl or something similar is the uh, the key ingredient in almost every over-the-counter sleeping pill. Um, the problem with that is uh, two things. If you take enough Benadryl uh, to fall asleep, and you will, it's sedating, people wake up feeling terrible hmm. because it does not cause normal sleep. Other problems with Benadryl, it's an anticholinergic drug. It actually speeds up your heart a little bit. Mm. It will, men who have problems with their prostate might have problems with the prostate. It's not totally benign. Uh, you could make an argument if it were you know, a rational universe, if it were coming out now. I'm not so sure it would be over the counter. Probably make a better case for Zolpidem, which is Ambien, being over the mm. counter. Oh, really? And even though with Ambien, some people like they get up and they and they do things, they're like sleepwalking and they don't yes. uh, recall doing this. I mean, that's, that's why not, that's that's why I would never take that because I'd be yeah. afraid of, oh, my God, what am I going to do? You know, you know, you yeah. just brought out a point that's interesting, too. What does it mean when people sleepwalk? Well, that's different. Um, first of all, as far as Zolpidem goes, Ambien. We know that when you sedate people, but they're not completely asleep, you can do some weird things. <laughs> uh, and it's not unique to that. You can see that with any. Right. Um, when you sedate people for a procedure in the hospital, sometimes uh, people will kind of act out and get really strange. They're not asleep yet, but they're not thinking very well. So there's nothing, I think, unique to Zolpidem. It's ah. a known thing, but it's known with a lot of uh, hypnotics. And it's still pretty rare. Uh Zolpin has the benefit, and it's been studied a lot, of causing pretty normal sleep, can we say sleep architecture? That's the word we use for the way these stages of sleep are put together. And it wears off about the right amount of time to get an average night's sleep. So it makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, and it's pretty clear it's not habit-forming uh, physically. Uh, now, that does not mean I'm advocating for that at all. In fact, uh, I relatively, very rarely uh, prescribe a true hypnotic. Uh, that's not the answer to most sleep problems. It's not just taking pills. But some pills make more sense than others. Now, sleepwalking at, outside of that is very different. When it's caused by a, a medication, that's different. But there is a certain amount of sleepwalking. Some of the more interesting patients I ever see uh, have sleepwalking. Sleepwalking means being able to do something physical while you're actually asleep. That's pretty strange, actually. Most sleepwalking occurs in kids. The reason for that is children have more of that stage three really deep sleep. Because it turns out hmm. that most sleepwalking is a deep sleep phenomenon. If I look at your brainwaves during deep sleep, it's totally different. You know, they're big, slow waves. It just looks like your mm. brain is turned off. Mm. Now, if that's true, how do you get up and walk around when your brain is turned off? Not exactly clear. It's mostly things that turn out to be pretty benign. You don't do anything terrible, typically. Um, it tends to be 
earlier in the night because that's when you have deeper sleep. If sleepwalking starts before about age 10, it probably means nothing. And it will probably go away. Although there are some adults who will do this all their life, and I don't know why. Huh. It's a deep sleep phenomenon. Anybody who comes in and says, I was sleepwalking, wasn't sleepwalking, if they remember it. Usually it's, you know, I somebody else wakes you up and you realize that you did something really weird. Or even in the morning, you realize that in the night you must have done something strange. <laughs> um, and that's mostly, that's what we call non-REM parasomnia. Parasomnia just means uh, something weird that happens during sleep. And this is non-REM, not in REM. REM parasomnia is a very different animal, and it's very much worse. We worry about that a lot. If you have the ability to act out dreams, you could yeah. do some really weird and possibly really dangerous stuff. And that's uh, one of the more interesting diseases I've ever seen, called REM sleep behavior disorder, hmm. where people can act out their dream. And that's a big problem. Are there certain um, instances where one should actually consult a sleep doctor? Well, sure. I mean, I just mentioned sleepwalking in children right. probably doesn't mean much. Sleepwalking, if you start as an adult, that's disturbing. Something's wrong. Um, the main symptom that I see actually is daytime sleepiness. Hmm. That's a little hard to figure out sometimes. Daytime sleepiness is different from just being tired, fatigued, hmm. at least a bit. Daytime sleepiness, we assess by saying, how likely is it you get drowsy right now if you were doing blank? There's actually a standard series of eight questions called the Epworth Questionnaire, uh, but it's that's the way you figure it out. It's Sleepiness is the propensity to fall asleep. Now, how likely is it that you'd fall asleep if you were reading a book right now, if you were watching television, if you were a passenger in a car, if you were driving? Yeah. Uh, and again, they have different significance, but that's sleepiness as opposed to just being tired. At the end of the day, I'm tired. I'm not likely to fall asleep driving home. Fatigue and sleepiness are different. True sleepiness, mm -hmm. if you're getting enough sleep, is one thing we're very often investigating. Other important uh, symptoms really are, we call it, the disorders of initiating or maintaining sleep. That's insomnia, one way or another. Uh, difficulty falling asleep has a little different significance from difficulty staying asleep. Difficulty falling asleep is probably more related to anxiety or behavior or hours. Maintaining sleep is a little more interesting. There's some medical reasons for that, possibly. Medication is not the primary way we treat it. Primary way to treat insomnia is behavior. Hmm. That's been looked at a lot. How do you change the behavior? Um, well, it's very easy. That's no, not easy, but it's easy for me to give advice. <laughs> if you want to sleep better, uh, the rules for sleep are, number one, keep a consistent waking up time. I mentioned before, circadian rhythm is set more by the time you wake up than anything else. So we always start there and work backwards. So if you want to be a good sleeper, I would ask you, okay, what time do you want to wake up? What's the best time? What's the most natural time for you to wake up? And if somebody says uh, seven o'clock, I'd say, okay, from now on, Set an alarm for seven o'clock. No matter how rotten your night is, get out of bed at seven. Mm. Ideally, get exposed to sunlight, which naturally wakes people up. 
exercise, if possible, and then food. Those are all the things that tell your body what time it is. This is uh, circadian physiology. This is um, ways that we entrain you, that's the word used, into the environment. So you start with the wake-up time and got to have an alarm clock. And people say, I don't need an alarm clock. I, I wake up anyway. No, bad sleepers need alarm clocks more than good sleepers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons is you set it, if it's set for seven, don't even look at it. You're going to wake up during the night. Everybody does. I don't care. Doesn't matter. If the alarm hasn't gone off, you don't get up. And if the alarm has gone up, get up. Uh, and no matter how rotten the night is, you start at the wake up time. And question number two is how much sleep do you think you need? You know, a reasonable answer is well, a little over seven hours. If you're a bad sleeper, I might err on this low side. But whatever it is, you say, okay. Seven hours sounds great. From now on, you're not allowed to go to bed, get into bed any earlier than midnight. From 11 to 12, ideally, people do well if they have about an hour to relax. Uh, so from 11 to 12, you're not allowed to be in bed, but you have to relax. You're not allowed to use the uh, a phone, personal electronics, computer, nothing for work. Read if it's for pleasure. Uh, watch television if you want. That's pretty mindless. Not in bed. Mm -hmm. Not allowed to get into bed till midnight. Going back further, I'm still going backwards. From about 10 30 to 11, I want you to worry. Very constructive. I spend half hour, maybe less. Make a list of all the things you got to do the next day, whatever's on your mind, all the things you're going to think about when you're trying to sleep at three in the morning. Uh, and it's a preemptive strike. So the idea then, if you wake up at four in the morning, which you will, I'll get back to that. Uh, um, you don't have to think about that. It's all written down. Um, right. Like we get that out of our system. Yeah. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I, you know, I, I have that written down. I'll think about that tomorrow. That's the, uh, yeah. under the wind line. Gone with the wind. I'll think about that tomorrow. Right. Right. Um, and that's the essence of what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. You're going to wake up in the middle of the night. Nobody sleeps through the night. Sleep does not come in a seven or eight hour chunk. It comes in again, two, two and a half hour cycle. Waking up briefly is perfectly okay. Doesn't mean the night's over. And it's not, you don't need seven hours in a row to feel good the next day. It's more like seven hours total. And it's, you know, it's really easy for me to give those rules to people. It's hard to do. It is hard to and do, you, but those are great tips for us. Well, but you realize what's going to happen here. Uh, oh, actually, the fifth rule is if anytime you're wide awake, get out of bed. Now, if you do that, what this means is seven o'clock in the morning, you're going to wake up. You have to keep yourself awake till midnight, no matter how rotten your night was. Uh, this is really tough to do for a few days. But then it gets better. You're really trying to use your body clock to get back to where you should be. And it is hard to do, but it really does work for the majority of people who are willing to do it. Wow. Sometimes we'll use a hypnotic sleeping pill with it. Usually I don't. But I don't think it helps that much. Hmm. Um, hypnotic sleeping pill, very much of it is placebo. 
the mind is very powerful yes, in, yes. in that way. Yes. It's a powerful biological drive. Even if you mess it up, it's hard to mess it up that much. You're going to sleep. No matter what. It's a basic biological drive. This is excellent information. Wow. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to try try to sort of organize my life that way a little bit, see if that works for me. That that uh, makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. It does. Lastly, but not least, um, can you recommend any like resources that people can consult or websites or? There's some good information out there. Um, in general, I guess my favorite source that I do refer patients to um, is the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Oh. Uh, it's an uh, organization I'm a member of. Um, the AASM uh, produces um, it's sleepeducation.org. Sleepeducation, one word, .org is a website that is all written by people like me, uh, you know, sleep doctors, uh, aimed at patients. And usually very reliable, good stuff. In fact, I use that a lot. I printed some of it, given to patients. Um, it's organized by disease. You can read about sleep apnea. You can read about insomnia. You can read about narcolepsy. And it's all in there. And it's, uh, I think, well vetted. Well, thank you so much for your time with us. And, and uh, this is most informative. I obviously like talking about it. Yeah, it's a good subject about which there is a great deal of ignorance. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to hear from you, so please visit our website at nowletstalkthepodcast.com and send us your comments and questions. We'll see you next time.